The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to In Discussion. Our guest today, Sam Shamoon. And James Yunan, in discussions, Middle East commentator, talked to the Islamic faith, its history, and current day influences. My guests today, Sam Shamoon and James Yunan. James Yunan, now in discussions, Middle East commentator, join me to discuss the Islamic faith, its history, and place in the world community. Shamoon is a frequent contributor to a prominent website dedicated to challenging the teachings of Islam. Additionally, he engages in debates as an informed apologist, refuting accusations and attacks leveled by proponents of Islam against Christianity. Sam and James, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, sir. (coughs) Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. You are very welcome. I'd like to uh, start uh, with you, Sam, if I may. Sure. Can you give our listeners a um, a brief background of uh, of your work in this area, please? Uh, yes. <coughs> um, again, I just ask that the Lord Jesus Christ enables me to speak on these topics clearly and without error and represent the other side accurately. I, I started uh, doing apologetics towards... Uh, providing a defense for the Christian faith when years ago in the 90s, late 90s, I encountered a Muslim apologist. And this Muslim apologist had very tough questions to ask of me concerning my faith, concerning uh, the truth of the Bible, and beliefs such as the Trinity. And by the grace of God, the Lord used that to get me to study the scriptures more in depth and to come up with answers to these objections. So um, when I started doing that, Around the year 1999, I heard of a website called Answering Islam. I contacted the gentleman who started the website, and I told him that I have some material that I'd like to submit to him. And if he'd be interested, <clears throat> that he could post it on his website. Saw the material, was interested, and that started a friendship that has lasted since 1999. And now, what, it's 2010? Mm-hmm. So it's about 11 years, and the website is called Answering Islam, and that's how I got into doing apologetic uh, work with Muslims. Now, you originally came from Kuwait. Yes. Well, my family was from Iraq, but my dad settled in Kuwait, and that's where I was born. Uh, but then my family settled in America. Uh, so I was born in 1972, but then in 74 they came to America. So pretty much I grew up in America. I don't have much uh, recollection of the Middle East. I was too young. Uh, for the most part, I've lived here. So. James, yes, uh, you are here today um, also uh, to talk to the Islamic faith. Um, what is it that you <coughs> think is occurring in the Middle East at the moment and, and worldwide uh, in y- your suggestion uh, and uh, uh, the issues today that it is... Um, uh, dedicated to disarming the Christian faith? Well, David, um, <clears throat> regarding our previous conversations, our previous programs here uh, on discussion, um, we know that Islam right now, they're on the move, on the verge of uh, taking over the world pretty much, although the world might not agree with me, think it's something that is very hard. But that's what the Muslim's mind really is thinking and focusing on. Uh, we discussed on uh, their thinking of genocide and takeover, and we see that's happening all over Europe, especially England. Uh, they were rejected in Australia, but uh, the reason killing that it had happened in uh, Egypt or the um, burning of the churches and uh, killing the Iraqi Christians, and we see them um, just going all over the world, and now they're coming to America, and they're growing in, uh, in America in a mighty number. Uh, what I want to do here is I want to uh, our listeners to understand where are they bringing their ideas, where are they coming from. 
do they have a, a, a motive behind this, what they're trying to, to accomplish. So, of course, I had to bring my a friend and my brother in Christ, <coughs> Sam Shimon, to, um, to give us a big uh, uh, picture on what do they teach. You know, him being a scholar and, and a good yeah. teacher, uh, he will definitely be helping us on that. The whole objection of this is to try to enlighten the Muslims. What are you trying to do to the world? Uh, as, as a great saying, say, can we all live together? Why can we all live together? And that's all we're looking for. If you want to be a Muslim, that's fine, but don't try to bring your beliefs and, and, and destroy mine because your beliefs said so. Hmm. Could I, Sam, just go back to history, yes. perhaps go back as far as the Old Testament? <clears throat> um, we know that uh, these faiths recognize Abraham, uh, yes. recognize uh, th there's a lot of commonality here up to a certain point. Uh, uh, I, I guess when we get into areas of the Trinity that it, it starts to uh, disintegrate. What is it essentially for our listeners that today uh, is reflecting the disintegration back then and reinforcing it uh, between <coughs> the way that uh, the Islamic faith looks at the world and the and the Christian faith looks at the world. Okay, um, as you said, you noted something uh, that was important. Uh, Jews, Christians, and Muslims trace uh, or claim Abraham as their own, the Abrahamic faith. At one time, you would say that uh, Judaism and Christianity were Abrahamic faiths. Now, with the rise of Islam, you're going to have to include Islam as part of it because Muslims believe on the basis of the Quran that Abraham was not just a, the physical ancestor of Muhammad. And that's important to, to note, especially for the audience. Muslims are convinced that Muhammad is actually a physical descendant of Abraham through his son Ishmael, just like the Jews are physical descendants of Abraham through his son Isaac. Uh, but beyond that, the Quran, the Muslim holy book, states that Abraham was a Muslim, <clears throat> that his religion was Islam. And if I can take a moment just to define those terms for our audience, Islam means submission and or surrender. A Muslim is one who submits and surrenders. Now in the theological context, the term means submitting oneself, one's will, in order to perfectly conform to the will of Allah. In other words, to submit to Allah, the one true God of all. So Abraham was one who submitted to the one true God, and Muslims seek to do that because they believe that the religion that Muhammad promulgated was the very religion believed on and taught by Abraham. You speak about the disintegration. Well, the disintegration between these communities is their conception of God and their belief regarding the person of Jesus. And, and when I say uh, <clears throat> their conception, I'm also including the Jews here because for the most part, um, the Orthodox Jewish community does not recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, the awaited Messiah to come. And although Muslims believe that Jesus is the Messiah or the Christ, they do not believe that Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, is the divine Son of God. They do not believe that Jesus the Messiah died on the cross as a propitiation for our sins, to make atonement for our sins. Therefore, if he didn't die, there was no bodily resurrection. So the disintegration comes um, in re regards to theology. And, and, and sorry to interrupt. <clears throat> That's if fine. I, if I may. Feel free to. Uh, is that disintegration coming in in the immediate period after Abraham when we start looking at the 12 tribes? Well, uh, if you go back, the only document we have that's an ancient document that predates even the time of Christ is the Tanakh or the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. If we want to get an idea of what went on, went on during that time, we have to turn to the Hebrew Scriptures. And in the Hebrew Scriptures, um, I, don't, I wouldn't say there's a disintegration as we find it among Muslims and Christians because what the Hebrew Scripture says is that God promised to bless Ishmael in, in making him a great nation. That promise is stated in Genesis chapter 17, and you can read uh, verse 20. If you want the context, you read from verses 17 to 21. God says to Abraham, I'm going to make Ishmael a great nation. He's going to have 12 sons. They're going to be 12 rulers, and he's going to be a great nation. However, my covenant is with Isaac. So we don't read of any disintegration between the Ishmaelites and the Israelites to the extent we find it with the rise of Islam. So when you say disintegration, were these communities separated? Yes, uh, but did that cause uh, onslaught and hatred and animosity between these groups? No, that starts with the rise of Islam. But, but it, it has essentially 
found us in a situation today where these two individuals have very much shaped the Middle East. Precisely. Their descendants have. Yes, exactly. Uh, and in fact, going back to what I said about the rise of Islam being primarily the cause of this in disintegration, because Muslims believe Ishmael is a son of Abraham, and that he was given a promise by God to become a great nation, they see the fulfillment of that promise in the rise of Islam, in the coming of Muhammad, a descendant of Ishmael. Therefore, their belief is that the Ishmaelites were promised to also receive a blessing, and this blessing wasn't limited to just being a great nation. It also included the blessings that went with the covenant that God made with Abraham. So it's not just, let's say, geographical, it's not just political, it's theological in nature. And Muhammad is the fulfillment of the promises that God made to Abraham, not just regarding Isaac, but regarding Ishmael, as far as the Muslim understanding is concerned. And I want to repeat, that's the Muslim understanding, right? And uh, we can talk about some more of the differences. For example, Muslims also believe, they were taught on their basis of some traditions, not all, that when Abraham was asked to offer up his son, if you go to the Judeo-Christian scriptures, both the Old and New Testament say it was Isaac. But according to certain strands of Islam, and I have to emphasize certain strands of Islam, because the Quran is pretty much silent on the name or the identity of the child, they say it was Ishmael, right? They say it was Ishmael who was offered up. And because Ishmael is willing to be offered up, God blessed Ishmael and promised to send him someone from his line that would bring the message of the true unity of the one God of Abraham. So. No, I, I have nothing to add. He's, he got it all covered up pretty well. Um, I just wanted to say something is that <clears throat> when we continue on that, now Muhammad claims to be exactly. a, a, one of the prophets that was sent yep. from Allah. <clears throat> and actually not only that, but he claims to be the last prophet, and that's actually exactly. mentioned in the Quran. Exactly, yes. And But that's we have a dilemma, we have a problem. We have some, uh, some writings of the Quran. I mean, I Passages, have the book of the yeah. Quran right in front of me which is, um, we can go to... Can I also clarify the use of the term Allah? Because uh, you'll notice that we're switching back from Allah to God. Right. And I don't know how many of the audience would know Arabic. I do want to just define the term Allah, lest we cause confusion. Because you see, we're going from the word Allah to God. Allah is simply the Arabic term, <clears throat> uh, meaning the God. Allah is actually a contraction of two Arabic terms. El, the definite article, and Ilah, Deity, the deity. In time, these two Arabic words were contracted to give us Allah. So Allah mean, means the supreme God, the one and only God, the God of all creation. Uh, you have Arabic-speaking Christians and Jews who also use the term Allah. So Muslims are not the only one, only ones using this term. So when I say Allah, that's simply the Arabic term for the supreme God. And it's a term that would be used by Arabic-speaking Christians and Arabic-speaking Jews. So it's not just unique to the Muslims. However, with that said... I need to qualify that a little further. Uh, just like the English term God can be generic enough to be used by any group. For example, if you were a Hindu and James was, a, was an Orthodox Jew and I'm a Christian and I said, praise God, none of you would object. But when I get specific and I define who this God is that I'm praising, you may object. If I say, praise God, who's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I don't think the Orthodox Jew or the Hindu would be praising. Correct. Because their conception of God is different. In the same token... Just because Arabic-speaking Jews and Arabic-speaking Christians use the term Allah, the conception of God in the Quran is different from the conception of God in the Bible. Although there are similarities, there are profound differences. So I just want to make that clear. There's nothing wrong with using the term Allah. However, we need to define our terms lest um, I give the misleading impression that the Quran is describing the same God that I worship as a Christian, because the God I worship on the basis of the scriptures is triune, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Whereas to say that Allah of the Quran is triune is anathema. It's, it's to commit what Islam calls the unpardonable sin, the sin of shirk, associating partners with God. And therefore, that sin will be punishable and it's not forgiven. So I just needed to make that qualification for the audience who's listening. Let's come up to modern day. <laughs> yeah. uh, it is apparent in the Middle East mm -hmm. that uh, the Christian society is a huge minority right. uh, to the point where possibly they represent maybe 10 or 15 percent of the society in the Middle East. Yes. Uh, now I'm going to be a devil's advocate here yeah. and I'm going to take the middle ground just for one minute. Sure. Why is this occurring? Why, why is it that 
Islam is so strong? Uh, what is it possibly that the that the uh, Christian faith is lacking in that it would allow such a disparity between mm. faiths? Um, James, you want to first comment? Then I'll. Well, what I wanted to say is a better question for that. Although we're coming to our modern day, and I would want to say is what is Islam? What do Muslims believe that causes them to that have causes them to have <clears throat> that? And, and I would give, of course, um, the the major difference is is that Islam is not just religious. A religion is a huge aspect of Islam, but Islam is actually more than religion. It's a socio-political system. In other words, in Islam, there is no separation of church and state. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Christianity, on the basis of the teachings of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, when Jesus was asked, are you a king? Remember Pilate uh, said, are you a king then? And Jesus responds, my kingdom is not of this world. That's in John 18, the Gospel of John. Chapter 18, verses 36 to 37, he says, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, then my servants would fight for me. So we take those statements from the New Testament, and we realize that the church is separate and distinct from the state. So the church does not have the mandate from Christ to impose the religion of Christ by the force or threat of the sword. So when you have that kind of scenario, and then you have Islam, which says there is no separation between church and state. The state must be governed by divine legislation, legislation revealed by Allah through his messenger. And this legislation also legislates the spreading of Islam militarily until the entire world is subjugated to the rule of Islam. You can see why Islam is spreading and you see Christians remaining a minority in the, in the, in the Middle East. Is that suggesting a weakness uh, to... Work in a modern day society, as when, far as the Christians are concerned. I, I'm not being derogatory. No, here. no, I understand. And I'm no. simply trying to take the middle ground. Uh, I'm a Christian, but Islam is is so strong. Yes. And yes, I understand what you're saying is that it, it, it is not just religion. I understand yes. completely uh, the road that you're taking, but they are strong, and the Christians are being. Uh, pushed to one, one side, if, if not being pushed out of society completely. Mm -hmm. What is that saying about the strength of the Islamic faith? And what is that saying about <laughs> uh, possible weaknesses in the Christian faith that are, uh, that are not pushing forward uh, um, uh, new ideas in our society today to make sure that they don't become a minority? <clears throat> Uh, you're, uh, just so I can get the gist of your question, are you saying that because Christians uh, are a minority and make a distinction between separation between church and state, somehow that may imply a weakness? Did I get your question? I guess so, yes. Uh, well, no, I don't see it as a weakness. I think actually when you have to uh, <clears throat> impose your religious beliefs through the threat of the sword, that's a sign of weakness. And why do I say that? Amen. Uh, Amen. When I tell you, listen, you better believe this way otherwise we're going to subjugate you and humiliate you to me that shows that the religion itself is intellectually bankrupt and if people had freedom of choice they wouldn't choose to follow such an oppressive system so i don't see it's a weakness on the side of christianity i actually see it's a weakness on the side of islam because think about it if you if you say that <clears throat> religion should dictate and mandate legislation the government let's say then pretty much if you have that situation you're going to have people using the sword to oppress and uh, actually to prevent uh, freedom of religion, right? Uh, and we see that even, unfortunately, in Christian history. We've seen that when Christians had power politically and the government was in their hands, that they would actually oppress people who didn't interpret scriptures exactly the same way they did. So I'm not just saying it's the Islamic fault. We see Christians doing that throughout history, but there's a difference. When Christians did it, they didn't do it on the basis of what Jesus taught. It was contrary to the teachings of Christ. When Muslims do it, they do it on the basis of what Muhammad taught. In other words, when Muslims seek to subjugate a, a place, a city, a village, a town, and then impose Islamic law on, on the inhabitants, the citizens of that town, they're not doing it contrary to the teachings of Muhammad. They're doing it in perfect obedience to the teachings of Muhammad. Whereas when Christians did it, they were clearly going against the teachings of Jesus. So to answer your question, going back, I don't see that as a weakness for Christians uh, being told that the church is separate from the state, 
because when you have religion and politics mixing in, then you're going to have oppression, and people will not be given the freedom to choose what religion they want to follow. And, and clearly that is has been repeated in history when you look at Henry VIII and exactly. uh, and, and uh, those sorts of periods where the, the king decides to become the, the head of state in, yep. in every way. Exactly. So with all that said, what is it that has to be done to uh, bring people to a better sense of community, uh, to, to try and understand what each other is doing mm. and, and create harmony? Mm. Very big question, yeah. I know, but it's, but it's, it's yeah. a fair one. Uh, well, to be honest <coughs> with you, uh, <clears throat> I really I don't want to sound pessimistic. Uh, when you have an ideology that's anchored in the divine, uh, when I, by that I mean when you have a system that believes it originates from a higher power, uh, and this this system says that you cannot be one among equals, and Islam clearly teaches that. In fact, we have references from the Quran. I don't want the audience to think I'm just making this up. I have statements from the Quran that if uh, we have time, we'd like to look into to see that what I'm saying is thoroughly Quranic. I'm basing my interpretation, my understanding of what the Quran says, as well as some narrations attributed to the prophet of Islam, whom I believe created Islam, but again, Muslims don't believe that. Uh, Islam teaches that Islam cannot be one among equals. Islam must dominate. This is in the, in the Quran itself. And if for the audience wants the reference, if they have a Quran, they want to read it, start reading chapter 9 of the Quran, chapter 9, verses 29 to 33. Chapter 9, verses 29 to 33. Here, the Quran <clears throat> commands Muslims to spread <clears throat> Islam Militarily, this is what is known as offensive jihad, jihad, the struggle. Now, there are various levels of jihad. I know that term is used in the media, and depending on whom you ask, you may get a different interpretation. The word jihad simply means struggle or striving. There are various levels of struggling and striving according to Islamic theology. Yet, an important and essential aspect of, of striving is to strive through military means in order to spread the rule of Islam all over the world. That's stated in chapter 9, verses 29 to 33. Is that offensive that you're, you're describing there not simply coming around because of, uh, because of fear mm. of, what, of, of what they are facing? Uh, when you, you're asking me, am I saying that uh, jihad is not just defensive but also offensive? What words? I'm saying is are they, are they on the offense like that yeah. because of fear of Christianity? Uh, well, it, see, again, you have to take into consideration uh, which Muslims you're speaking about and where do they live. Um, for example, in the Middle East, Muslims have the upper hand. So when you go to Muslim, Muslim countries where the majority of the people are Muslims, you're going to see Islam being implemented the way Muhammad wanted to be implemented when Muslims had the upper hand. For instance, in Saudi Arabia, Christians can't build the church. You can't even walk out publicly with the Bible. Now, is that because the Saudi Arabian government is going against the teachings of Islam, or are they acting in perfect conformity with the teachings of Islam? Well, if you read the Quran and the narrations attributed to Muhammad, Muhammad and his followers forbade Christians from renovating churches and building new ones and from publishing or uh, presenting their books and their Christian symbols publicly. So what we see in Saudi Arabia when you have Muslims in the majority, and they're running the government, you see Islam being expressed as Muhammad wanted to be expressed. However, when you're living in the West, and the Muslims are in the minority, and the majority of people are non-Muslims, and the government's in the hands of the non-Muslims, then you're going to see a different side of Islam. You're going to see the side of Islam that Muhammad presented when he was weak and outnumbered by disbelievers. In fact, if we're going to do justice to this topic of jihad, we have to talk about the three stages of jihad. There are actually three stages. Some would break it down into four, but there are basically three stages depending on the situation and circumstances that Muslims find themselves in. Stage one is the stage in which Muslims are outnumbered by disbelievers and the power structure is the hands of the disbelievers. In that stage, and if you go back and look at the example of Muhammad, this is how he implemented it. So I'm going by Muhammad's example. In that stage, Muslims are told to preach tolerance, peaceful coexistence. And this is what you find in the West. You're going to find Muslim scholars coming on television saying, there is no compulsion in religion. Mm -hmm. They'll quote the Quran. That's in chapter 2, verse 256. Mm -hmm. Or they'll quote chapter 109 of the Quran saying, to you, your religion, to me, my religion. Right. 
those passages had a, a historical setting behind them. Those passages were quote-unquote revealed because in, in the case of chapter 109, when Muhammad composed that chapter, he was a minority in Mecca, which is in Saudi Arabia, and he was outnumbered by the disbelievers. So all he could do was preach tolerance. That's stage one. According to Islamic history, Muhammad migrated to Medina, which is the, to the north of Mecca, and this is in Saudi Arabia. Once there, he became head of state, and he had several tribes under his power, and he had warriors who would go out and loot caravans, rob caravans. Once he gets to stage two, then he says, now Muslims can defend themselves if they're attacked. That's stage two, right? Then you get to stage three, and what is stage three? If you go back and look at the life of Muhammad, he had conquered all of Arabia at at this time, at stage three, he had conquered all of Arabia. All these Arab tribes came under his, power, under his control. Now he says, go out and spread the rule of Islam all over the world. Not go spread Islam to those who are attacking you. So fight them and subjugate them in self-defense. No, go spread Islam all over the world because according to a sound narration attributed to Muhammad, this is what he told the Jews. He goes, the entire earth belongs to Allah and his messenger. Mm -hmm. And I seek to expel mm -hmm. you from this land. Right. Notice so, me. so in other words, uh, when you're talking about stage one, and you're talking about Muslims in this country, yes, right, who are supposedly uh, peace-loving people, that's right. Are you suggesting that they have a higher purpose? Uh, well, that the majority of Muslims, no. I don't. I'm not suggesting that at all. Because uh, again, it's important that I qualify <clears throat> what I'm saying and not broad brush. I don't want the audience to think I'm saying every Muslim has an agenda and that he or she is deceiving or lying in our face because most Muslims don't know Islam. And that's the same thing with most Westerners who would profess to be Christian. How many people who profess to be Christian truly know what the Bible teaches? So I would say that majority of Muslims living in the West don't know any of this. In fact, many of them, if they hear what I say, would be shocked. And their first reaction is, you're lying. But then when I produce the documentation and they see that this is what Islam teaches, then <clears throat> reality sets in. And once confronted with the evidence, that Muslim has a choice, either to believe that this is from God and then seek to be a better Muslim and then strive to implement the commands of, of Allah and His Messenger, or hopefully by the grace of God, he or she will see, well, this can't be from God. If God is a God of love and He's a God of mercy and compassion, as well as being a just God, why would God order the complete humiliation and subjugation of non-Muslims? Won't God take care of disbelievers on the Day of Judgment? I mean, according to Islamic theology and Christian theology, there's a Day of Judgment. So that if you refuse to accept, let's say, Christianity, and we presuppose Christianity is true. I believe Christianity is true. Jesus is Lord. He's risen. Case closed for me. And the historical evidence supports the resurrection of Jesus as a fact of history. And we can talk about that in a future show. But <coughs> if I present to you the truth of Christianity, and I give you all this evidence showing you Christianity is true, and you refuse it, God has not given me the right to then subjugate you, humiliate you, oppress you, and or kill you because you refuse to accept the truth of Christianity. So he has a day of judgment that will take care of that. So in other words, the, the strongest will win. Mm. Under the current situation, it, uh, it is likely that if Islam, faith, uh, and Muslims in, in that area of Muslim faith who want to take over the world. And Will. If they can. Yeah, if they can. In other words, if, uh, and see, those Muslims who know their religion and know what I'm saying to be true are working towards attaining stage three. And that's not the majority of Muslims. And I want to be quite clear. I don't want to scare the audience because, you know, most Muslims are just peaceful people. They're here for a better life, better education. The Muslims who know their faith, the scholars who know this to be true, are working behind the scenes, behind closed doors, so that the situation will be such where they can arrive at stage three and then take over. Yes, those who know their religion, that's what they're striving for, economically, politi politically, socially. And you're talking in the main, those faiths in the Middle East. Yeah. Well, even if the West, you have Muslims who know this stuff, they're in the West. They know, Islamically speaking, uh, that it's preferable for a true Muslim to live in a Muslim land 
where Islam is being followed than living in the land of the kuffar. The word is kuffar, meaning disbelievers. They know this. According to the traditions, Muhammad said it's better to migrate from the land of the disbelievers to the land of believers. So why are the Muslims here? Because those Muslims who know their faith, I'm talking about the scholars, I'm talking about the apologists, I'm not talking about the average Muslim who left Pakistan or India because they were seeking a better life or better education. I'm not talking about them. And that happens to be the majority. I'm talking about the Muslim scholars, the apologists, the Islamic centers that know what Islam teaches. The reason why they're here in the West is because they want to come here and be, be used by Allah to orchestrate events <clears throat> that will lead to stage three so that when Muslims are in a majority, then they'll be able to take over the land that they live in. You, you're almost talking a, a sort of George Orwell mm. uh, picture here. You know, a sort of domination, a, well, big, a big brother domination. Well, if it's, unless the audience thinks, say I'm making it up, maybe my brother James can read what the Quran says. Mm -hmm. Because so far I've said a lot, but I haven't given any references from the Quran mm -hmm. apart from a narration tribute of Muhammad. Brother James has two English translations of the Quran. And not only does he have the two English translations of the Quran, he can also read the Arabic Quran. Because a lot of times we'll say, oh, but the Quran is not the Quran. If it's in translation, you need to know the Arabic. Well, we have the Arabic here lest someone accuse us of misinterpreting or misrepresenting what the Quran says. And I want the audience to get the reference. Chapter 9, verses 29 to 33. Chapter 9, verses 29 to 33. And it's also important that I let the audience know that this, is, this was Muhammad's final marching orders. Shortly after the composition of this chapter of the Quran, Muhammad died. So these were his final marching orders to his community. Notice Muhammad's final marching orders isn't well, you know, live peacefully with other religions in, in peaceful coexistence. This is what he says in verse 29. Brother James, if you can just read 29 and pause right after you finish reading 29. In Arabic, you want it first? No, in English. In English. Yeah. Well, uh, the word qatilu has been uh, watered well, down. You know, uh, it says, fight those we... Fight those who believe not in Allah nor the last day. Catch nor what it does not say. Mm -hmm. I, I, I need to interject so the audience mm -hmm. can see. Did it say fight those who oppress you and attack you? Not at all. It said, fight those who do not believe in Allah, nor the last day. Notice what it's saying. It's not saying fight those who bothered you or attacked you or persecuted you. That's not what the passage is saying. It's saying fight those who don't believe like you. Fight those who do not believe in Allah, nor the last day. And I'll come back and explain what that means from Islamic perspective. But continue. Nor hold that forbidden which hath been forbidden by Allah and his messenger. Nor acknowledge the religion of truth from among the people of the book until they pay the jizya with willing submission and feel themselves subdued. Now notice what it said there. Muhammad's final marching orders to his community. Now remember, this was composed when Muhammad has now conquered the entire Arabian Peninsula, the Hejaz. They're all under his authority right now. In fact, if the audience wants to verify what I'm saying, I'm going to recommend an online resource, because it's free if you have internet, this resource is the abridged English translation of one of the greatest Muslim commentators who has ever lived. Mm -hmm. He was a medieval Muslim theologian and a commentator. His name is Ibn Kathir. You don't need to remember that, but Ibn Kathir, you can read an abridged translation of his massive Arabic commentary in the Quran online for free by going to the following website URL. It's www.tafsir. T-A-F-S-I-R, T-A-F-S-I-R.com, tafsir.com. I, I encourage the audience, in fact, I challenge them to go to this website, click on Ibn Kathir's exegesis interpretation of chapter 9, verse 29. I'm inviting them to do it. This is a Muslim who's writing a commentary in the Quran, and he's writing at a time where Muslims are dominant and they have the upper hand, so he doesn't need to sugarcoat anything. If you read how he explains this passage, it will be shocking to the Western audience who's not familiar with the concept of jihad. <coughs> this is what he says. He says that this passage was given when Muhammad had the entire Arabian Hejaz under his control, and he gave the marching orders to spread Islam, not against those who attack Muslims, but those who don't believe like Muslims. In fact, notice what the passage said. You don't believe in Allah? You don't believe in the last day? You don't forbid what Allah and His Messenger have forbidden? And you don't uphold the religion of truth. According to the same chapter, same context, the religion of truth is not Christianity. It's not Islam. I'm sorry, it's not Judaism, I apologize. It's Islam. 
Now, I don't know what your religious background is. Let's say you're a Christian. I, I didn't ask. It's my first time meeting you. But say you're a Christian. According to Islam, you're not upholding the religion of truth because Christianity is a perversion of the true religion of all the prophets, especially Jesus, because Jesus was no Christian. That's what the Quran says. So you don't uphold the religion of truth. And if I asked you, do you believe that God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit? If you were to say yes, that means you do not believe what Muhammad believed about God. That is grounds to fight you. The passage is saying fight those who don't believe like you. And it says even if they are people of the book, for the audience who may be hearing this term for the first time, Ahl al-Kitab. People of the book is a reference that the Quran gives to Jews and Christians. In exactly. recognition of the fact that Jews and Christians were given scripture by the same God who revealed the Quran to Muhammad. Because the Quran says, Muhammad came in the succession of all the prophets of the Bible. Right. They actually believe all the prophets of the Bible, including Jesus, were Muslims, taught the same religion that Muhammad taught. So they acknowledge Jews and Christians as communities that were given scripture like Muslims were. But the difference is Jews and Christians corrupted their scripture. So it's saying fight even the Jews and Christians until they are subdued and pay jizya. Pay the jizya and feel themselves subdued. Ibn Kathir says the payment of this jizya, and by the way, jizya, for those who are just listening, is a payment that you must pay your Muslim overlords. Because Islam gives Jews and Christians three options. Let's say if Muslims took over America. These are the three options to any Jew and Christian. Become Muslim. You don't want to be Muslim? Okay. Remain a Jew or Christian, but you must pay jizya. If you refuse to pay the jizya, then we will kill you, and to the victor goes the spoils. This is what it says. Fight them until they pay the jizya. So if you pay the jizya, it says, the jizya is a sign of you being subdued. Go back and read Ibn Kathir. This is what he ex how he interprets the Arabic, and he shows how Muhammad's companions implemented. The jizya is a sign that the Jews and Christians are disgraced, belittled, humiliated. Those are the exact terms he uses. That's from one of their greatest commentators. Now, one thing I want to add, if we want to see in our modern day a movement like that, uh, and that is the leader, Osama bin Laden, who is actually trying to implement exactly what's written in the Quran. Yes, I Exactly agree. that. Yeah. So how dangerous is Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda to the world? But according to the politically uh, correct West, no, he's a terrorist, he's hijacked Islam. That's yes. what they'll tell you all the time. Of course they say that. Okay. This is all well and good, and, and uh, clearly your information is backed up in the yes. Quran. And uh, it's wonderful that you have provided our listeners with this point of reference. What is it that we have as solutions yeah. to take care of this. We can talk about this all day. It's like politics. It, it's like uh, global warming. Uh, it is like uh, the huge unemployment that we're facing in this country. But in this, what are the solutions that we can put into place? Mm. Uh, and what, what can the Christians do yes. to alleviate this massive chasm between Islam and Christianity. Right. Uh, can I be very honest with you? Uh, the solution is not political. It's not economic. Uh, it's not an economic solution. Uh, it's not sending uh, soldiers to Muslim lands in order to impose a democratic government because that's not going to work. As I said earlier, when you have a system that believes it's divine in origin, no man-made system can usurp it. So when you're going to try to impose democracy in a Muslim land to a people who are convinced Sharia, Islamic jurisprudence is divine in origin. How many of the people do you think will choose a man-made system over a divine one? So the solution is not political. It's not social or economic. I'm going to be very upfront, and I know maybe somebody on says, oh, this guy is just uh, he's a fundamental one. No, the solution is Jesus Christ. Amen. I would agree Unless with that. and until Jesus Christ penetrates the heart of a Muslim, and a Muslim embraces the rule of Christ, which is one of peace, I do not see a human solution to a problem that can only be solved by divine intervention. And I have to be upfront with you. This is why we're having so much problem in the Middle East, in Afghanistan, and in Iraq. You may have a group of Muslims who are fed up with the Taliban, but then you have just as many Muslims who realize, wait, you know what? This is a divine uh, legislation. It originates from a higher power, 
We have no right to tamper with it and allow man-made systems to come and usurp it. This is a problem that's going to remain with, uh, with us till the very end, unless and until the gospel of Jesus Christ penetrates the hearts of the Muslims and they can see the vast difference be between the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ and the rule of Allah and His Messenger. Okay, so um, understand, completely understand. But in the meanwhile, yes, what is going to occur? With the, the, the geographic landscape, the makeup of people, society, not only in the Middle East, but in Europe and here in North America. What could occur if we see the current uh, movement that we have with the Islamic faith before something happens? Yeah. Uh, if, uh, because of our freedoms, how, how much can we really do without censoring Muslim belief? In other words, if you really want to check this problem, then that pretty much means preventing Muslims from worshipping freely, worshipping and implementing the rules of Allah. But how realistic is that in a land in which we have freedom of, of uh, assembly, freedom of expression and so forth? I know I was going to say, if you impose that, then it's going to affect I, I, all of us. are you not becoming Precisely. as bad as they are? Exactly. exactly. So what solution can you give that's human? That's my problem. It's a dilemma. But here's what we're trying to do as, as uh, you know, we have uh, Brother Sam Shamoun, we have great uh, uh, scholars out there that are helping in, in the idea of debates and, and, and things like that. What we're doing is, of course, the, the final solution has to be Jesus Christ, has to be a divine intervention, yes. has to be that. Yes. But in the meanwhile, he had risen giants, people like Brother Sam Shamoun, and there's another individual yeah. that I would like to mention his names if it's possible. If you want Bro to go ahead, I don't Bro know. Brother James White, yes, I mean, he's, he's, he's one of the greatest apologetics, and, and there are only few people you can count on one hand what he what he does and may god bless him and protect him always uh, people like that what we're trying to do is trying to educate the, the the islamic mind or the muslims mind to look these are the things that you believe and look how accurate they are and what and, and and things like that through debates through conversations through this radio programs challenging and, their worldview is pretty much absolutely famous. but we cannot reach the whole nations of islam you see, but those who are listening, they are going to open their mind, and those who are searching, they are going to come to the truth to understand truly what they believe is not really divine. It's not from God, therefore they don't need to be living under an oppressive system. Yes. So would it be fair enough to say that if we take the position of live and let live, that if the Islamic faith that we're talking about could lose that military position, right. lose that uh, position of fear, not only in other people outside of the faith, but uh, both also in the people within their faith, that possibly we could have a better world here and that and things could level out? I believe truly that uh, if we were to get rid of those oppressive mil militaristic passages of the Quran, yes, exactly, we could live and a much more peaceful <clears throat> society, and there would be better coexistence. However, which Muslim is going to allow you to edit the Quran? Those, are, those passages are part of the Quran. And in traditional Islamic theology, the Quran is the eternal, uncreated speech of Allah. Are you telling me that you want to edit the speech of God? And there's a, copy, there's a copy up in heaven. There's yes. a Lohan Mahfuz. They have yes, a copy exactly. of the Quran. The Quran heaven. is actually the earthly replica of that which is contained in the heavenly tablet, as my brother just said. And that heavenly tablet was written down by Allah himself, mm -hmm. and it's his eternal speech. Allah's eternal speech recorded in the heavenly tablet, which is the, the exemplar from which we get the Quran. Are you telling me that you want to edit the speech of God? How <laughs> dare you? You see the dilemma? Yes. The solution is not, like I said, a socio-economical, political one. It has to be a divine one. Okay, but is there... Anything that can be done by governments, states, uh, leaders to alleviate the excessiveness that you have now? Apart from bringing awareness about what Islam teaches, uh, beyond that, there's not much we can do because if we go beyond just bringing awareness like we're doing right now, we're making Westerners aware of the teachings of Islam and its ramifications. Even though the Muslim apologists are trying to do their best to either <clears throat> deny 
that such passages ex exist or reinterpret them such a way in order to keep us Westerners off guard. Right. Beyond that, what would you suggest? Uh, surveillance? Uh, tapping their phones? I mean, it's going. if we go that route, all of us are going to lose our rights. So in other words, the way it's set up in the West, the West has set, set its, uh, itself up in such a way that the freedoms that you and I enjoy are freedoms that Islam <clears throat> will take advantage of. Mm -hmm. And the only solution is to take freedoms away from them. But if you do that, then you have to be consistent and do it across the board. That means I, too, will have to suffer, meaning that I won't be given that luxury to come and speak about Jesus or that Jesus is the only way. Because if we're going to be consistent, we can't just do it for one group. That would be discrimination. It would have to be done across the board. And how many people would want that? Right. You know, they they try to uh, to implement the Sharia law, I believe, in Australia, and the government of Australia says, listen, th there's no room for you to do that, not in this land. Mm -hmm. And if you want to continue doing that, you know what, just go back the way that you came in. You're not welcome with that ideology here. And in America, we should, and we, we're doing, so far we're doing okay, but then again, we're only doing okay. Uh, again, you remember in, in the previous program that they are uh, growing in number, and Precisely. because we have a democratic society, guess what? They're going to end up voting, and they're going to implement certain things that you and I and average people might not be able to be aware of, you uh, see. Well, you, know, you know there's a sense of paranoia in this. Well, I mean, I can understand, yes, what you're saying, that people can uh, see this as paranoia. However, like I said, um, <clears throat> I truly believe that God exists and he's sovereign over creation. See, this is why I keep going back to Jesus Christ. Right. The reason why I'm not paranoid, here's why. Let me tell you why I'm not paranoid. Jesus Christ lives. He left the tomb empty. And he sits as enthroned as King of kings and Lord of lords. No one, not even Islam, will dethrone him. This is why I'm not paranoid. This is why I'm not afraid to preach the gospel to Muslims because I love them enough to say, listen, you have a solution. His name is Jesus Christ. Amen. So, someone who truly knows that Jesus is alive, will not be afraid because they're humans who are under bondage to an oppress oppressive system and oppressive uh, spirit. And Jesus Christ says, if the sun sets you free, you shall be free indeed. He is the solution of this problem. Okay, so uh, let's just take a hypothetical. I'm a Muslim sitting here now. Yes. And I'm saying to you, great. Can we just live together? I have my beliefs, you have yours. Praise God, that's what I that's want. Exactly However, what, what I'm going to tell the Muslim is, what do you do with all these passages of the Quran? See, amen, brother and humanity. Let us just live peacefully. But if you're going to be a true Muslim, how can you reconcile that position with statements of the Quran, such as chapter 9, verses 30 to 33? See, we didn't even read the rest of the passages. Right. You, you will not be able to come up to that how conclusion. How are you going to reconcile that? You okay, can't. well, how is it that Tony Blair, the ex-Prime Minister of the UK, spends most of his time reading the Quran? Uh, <laughs> do you want to be a Muslim? Is that what it is? It's I mean, a really wacky question. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know why you want me to answer that one, but <laughs> you know. Um, Surely God puts us on this earth, yes, to be able to uh, um, think logically with wisdom, and to be able to uh, uh, drive humanity to a good place. Yes, that exactly. is uh, that is what He wants of us. Yeah. Therefore, you. You mentioned that it's going to be a divine intervention, but isn't there somehow in this world that you, I, and human beings can maybe give God and Jesus Christ a bit of a break here and say, <laughs> we can do this. We don't actually need you on this occasion because we can create the solution. Well, let's see what happens when we try to give God a helping hand. Can you explain to me the situation in Afghanistan when we try right. to do it on our own? Uh, strength and wisdom. What's going on in Afghanistan? What's going on in Iraq? See, when you say, well, let's give God a break, okay, but that's what we tried to do in Afghanistan, Iraq, and can you tell me how the situation is in Afghanistan right now? When we said, God, you can take a break, we're going to do it our, through our own strength, with our own wisdom. You tell me. Well, that didn't work. What we did, we're trying to negotiate with Taliban right now. Maybe we can shut them off with yes, some money right now. Yes, you're going to negotiate with the very, uh, yeah. yes, yeah. That's, that's the work of man. You, you, you knew that was coming, David. So. You see, so when you tell me, let's give God a break, that's what we've been doing. I, I, you know I was using the wrong terminology, and, and I shouldn't. Or let's say, give but, God a helping but, hand. Yes, that's what go. I'm saying. All right, we are giving God that's a helping hand. Saying. How good are we doing? 
how good of a job are we doing by giving God a helping hand? Well, then, do you think that we should do better? <laughs> well, I think the only way you can do better is to realize that if you're talking about Islam, see, we're not talking about a secular atheistic government. We're not talking about communism. Uh, that's pretty much atheistic in its worldview. We're talking about a worldview that's anchored in the belief of God. You're talking about people who believe that this is what the creator of the universe mandates of us. If you're trying to replace that system, you cannot replace a system that's divine in origin in their thinking with a human one. You must give them an alternative and saying, here is a system that's truly divine and it's truly liberating. That's the only way. See, what you're trying to do is saying, listen, forget this divine system. Come and follow this human one. And Muslims aren't buying it. No, thank you. You can keep it. We'd rather follow God than what you think is right because God knows better. So what we're introducing saying, well, yes, we appreciate the fact that you have a zeal for God and that you, that you fear God and love God. But we're telling you this is not from God. This is from the true God. And notice the difference that this God makes. The God of Christianity, the God that Jesus Christ revealed, mm. is a God that says that he loves even his enemies. That's right. The God that Jesus reveals is the God that says, pray for your enemies. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. That's the God that Jesus reveals. That's the God Muslims need. In the final 30 seconds, just uh, give me a summary of what you would like to see for our world now. I would like to see Muslims liberated from such an oppressive system, a system that they think is divine in origin, but it's not. I would like to see Muslims enjoy the benefits <clears throat> that Jesus Christ has brought to this world. Because, again, Muslims are not just attacking Christians. Muslims are killing each other. And their only solution is to know Jesus Christ, who doesn't destroy life, but gives life more abundantly. The solution is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Sam Shamoon, James Yunan, our Middle East commentator, thank you so much for being here today. We very much appreciate it. And uh, to our listeners, I hope that you have enjoyed uh, this uh, program as much as as I have, if you require any information on this program, uh, including uh, the website for our guest today, please visit davidgibbons.org. There's also a blog that you can leave uh, any messages, and I'm sure that these gentlemen will be very pleased to respond to any questions you have. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, God bless you, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. <laughs>